What's up, everyone? Welcome to episode 40 of the Noise Podcast, brought to you by noise.co.uk and sponsored by Stereo Brain Records. I am your host, slash your boy, Chris Pugh, and I am joined, as ever, by my very good friend and Mr. Cynical himself, Samuel Lewis. Mate, how are you? I'm very well, mate. How are yourself? I'm really good, man. As always, uh, we are fortnightly rock and metal podcast sponsored by the beautiful folks over at Stereo Brand Records. They're an emerging label based in Cardiff, home to the likes of Night Lives, The Nightmares and Fort. On the last episode of the Noise podcast, Machine Heads The Blackening entered our greatest metal album of all time list. There was album reviews on Amur's Hindsight, Make Them Suffer's How to Survive a Funeral and Lamb of God's new self-titled record. On this episode, Again, our greatest metal album of all time, this continues. Plus, we've got reviews on the new Fox Draw record, Royal Swan, and the brand new Berry Tomorrow record, Cannibal. Uh, if you're listening to us on YouTube, it'd be great if you could give us a, subscri- a subscription. And if you're listening up a podcast, leave a five-star rating. If you've got a friend that listens to rock and metal, let them know about us, man. We don't do any paid advertising. We exist purely on word of mouth. If you're here listening, thank you. But if you could tell a friend as well. That'd be awesome. Keep us growing. We are coming to you on, I'm recording this on a Monday. And you might be thinking, well, Chris, why would you be recording on Monday? I thought you'd do it on Sundays. Uh, we do, usually. <laughs> but yesterday, <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to run up to it, mate. Yesterday, me and Sam were one hour into the show, to which I then said, Sam, I haven't recorded a solitary second of this. And bless you, Sam. You resisted the urge to call me every vile, venereal name under the sun. <laughs> Although I know uh, you want to. Thank you. Uh, the hole in my wall um, is not particularly <laughs> yeah. grateful. <laughs> you had a picture of me on your mirror this morning that you scrunched up the second you woke up. There's actually a dartboard with just pew written above <laughs> it. It's just dotted with holes. However, right, and this, this is the great thing about life, right, the time that I would have spent editing the podcast last night, because I didn't have to do that, I finished Last of Us Part 2. Uh, and fucking wow. Obviously, if you're listening, don't worry, I'm not going to tell you any spoilers. I would never do that. But fucking wow. Amazing. Unbelievable. Like, uh, like if that's as good as games ever get, then we were just lucky to have it, man. I, I'm just in awe of the story, a told man. And I literally, just before we came on, Sam, uh, I spoke, this, this is the tiniest of tiny, tiny spoilers. Um, just before we came on, I saw that Kerrang! had posted a link to an article where basically in the game uh, you can you can play a guitar it's lying about occasionally in the game and someone has figured out nothing else matters on it because basically <laughs> you, you know the touchpad on the PS4 controller yeah 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 like you use that to go it's got every chord like there on the screen and you use L1 and R1 to flick between chord sequences so it's got the real chords of the guitar and you flick between the sequences with L1 and R1. So someone has actually figured out nothing else matters. And it's just amazing, man. Oh, like, I mean, what a, what a beautiful little cherry on the amazing, incredible cake that's Last of Us Part 2. So, mate, I'm glad I didn't record a second of it yesterday because I still wouldn't have finished I'm it. Starting to th- I'm starting to think this was deliberate. <laughs> yeah, you know what, mate? It might have been, like, without me knowing. I might have been thinking this whole time, I'm going to fuck Sam here. I'm just going to get in there and do it. <laughs> not record a single moment, pretend it's an accident, and finish The Last of Us Part 2 tonight. Um, like, anyone listening, holy shit, if, I'm pretty sure you know the game exists. If you didn't, where have you been? Play the first one, and holy shit, play that fucking second one, man. Before we go down a rabbit hole of me just talking about The Last of Us Part 2 and how brilliant it is, because that could be a podcast in itself. Sam, if you could introduce to me the 12th greatest metal album of all time, Absolutely. It is Ozzy Osbourne's Blizzard of Oz. 
perfectly timed with this because the, today I literally read the last page of Ozzy Osbourne's autobiography. So this couldn't have come round at a better time. If it, always like starting off though, when you announce which album it's going to be that's next in the list, a quick like kind of round robin from you as to why this album is so important and resonates with you to the point of mate, putting it in the top 12. Yeah, well, it was it was massively important for Ozzy Osbourne to get this right. So it was obviously first his first solo record um, following his departure from Black Sabbath. And he transitioned out of Sabbath with um, the issues that they had and was pretty much rescued out of a stupor by, um, by Sharon Ard. And that was a name then famously now, Sharon Osbourne. And they surrounded him with a band that featured several classic musicians in, um, that included Randy Rhodes, obviously, and um, drummer Lee Kerslake, bassist Bob Daisley, who was, um, I think was in Rainbow. And they banded together and, and helped create what is one of the most iconic albums of the 80s. Um, Blizzard of Oz contains two or three of, of the most iconic songs of the, the 80s heavy metal era, um, including Mr. Crowley and obviously The Immortal, um, Crazy Train itself, one of the all-time great riffs. But it's, it's an album that propelled Ozzy Osbourne from the madcap vocalist in Black Sabbath to a metal icon, and he used it as a propeller to, to really act as a springboard for himself over the next decade and a half we're essentially just toured around the country pretty much constantly and catapulted himself into legendary status. And without those tours, opportunities may not have been given to the bands that were given to alongside Ozzy Osbourne, which included um, Metallica and Motley Crue during the 80s as well. So it had a massive impact later because of this album. Um, obviously, we'll get into the details of the songs songs later and, the, and, and and sort of the conversations around the musicality and stuff like that. Um, but it came in one of the great years of um, heavy metal, 1980. We spoke about that before. Um, you know, Ace of Spades, Back in Black, uh, British Steel, Yawn, um, and others. Um, and really set the tone for what the 80s was as a, as a massive demarcation away from 70s music, where you had, as I've said before, obviously Black Sabbath had obviously split up, which led to this album, but also Deep Purple were gone. Uh, John Bonham had died. ACDC were replacing Bon Scott. Uh, we, Iron Maiden hadn't broke through yet. Thrash Metal wasn't a thing. Uh, we didn't have any Metallica, nothing like that. And it was a massive turning point um, where heavy metal went into the next decade, led by bands such as Ozzy Osbourne. Um, and it's a, just a huge album for this era. And like I said, um, Crazy Train is, is one of the top 15 all-time heavy metal songs. Absolutely. This is one of the top, one of the top 10 heavy metal albums of the 1980s, probably. And he's absolutely here for its iconic status and some of the most riveting guitar work I have ever heard from a 1980s album um, that, I, that I'm conscious and aware of. It, that combines both the iconic riffs, but also these mind-bending incredible solos and touches of subtlety from Randy Rhodes. And it also has a, a really interesting story and a collection of its own controversies and like a legacy on top of the legacy. Like it's not just a good album. 
like we've talked about albums before, we focus just on the musicality, but there's so much to unpack with Blizzard of Oz in terms of the context that surrounded the album coming forward and also the controversy that follows. So it's, it's a really vital album in the, um, in the tapestry of heavy metal. You mentioned context there, and that's a, that's a great point, as well as the Ozzy Osbourne transitioning from just Black Sabbath's madcap vocalist. Because you read his book, and it's very apparent that come, the, coming towards the end of the 70s, Black Sabbath's relationship within the band was becoming continuously, continuously strained, especially at Ozzy's end. Uh, he was complaining in the press about directions taken in music, uh, his alcoholism, which really didn't get under control until his 60s, was at not its worst, but it was getting to its worst during the late 70s. And Black Sabbath had just had enough, and the straw that brought the camel's back was... Ozzy Osbourne um, getting fucked out of his mind, falling asleep in the wrong hotel room, missing the morning call and sleeping throughout the day, missing a show. And they were like, you're fired. And that's 1979. And I think think you'll probably agree with me here, Sam. Ozzy Osbourne venturing down this solo avenue was more him was as much him trying to prove a point to Black Sabbath that he could be more than just the guy that is this crazy heavy metal persona that also isn't too bad on vocals. You again, you read the book and the Black Sabbath creative outlook does seem very much like it's Tony Bill and Geezer writing the songs and then dragging Ozzy in from the pub and saying, "Can you put some vocals on this?" And I think he he had a point to prove that he could be more than that. Absolutely. I think it was, I think it was certainly important for Ozzy to feel that he could do something outside of Sabbath um, for his own, for his own self-esteem, but that wouldn't have happened just on Ozzy's back. Um, It's, it's important to remember that Ozzy didn't just get kicked out of black Sabbath and then wake up the next morning and, and start making phone calls. He went to, um, he went to a hotel and drowned himself in coke and alcohol for like a month. And then Shannon called him. Shannon was um, the daughter of Don Arden, who I think used to manage Sabbath amongst many other yeah, managers he, bands he in the 60s and 70s. Jet records. Yeah. So, so she said, look, um, you, can make, you can make an album. We'll manage you and we'll put a band together. And it took Shannon and Don to find these find these people who were, were interested in um, coming with him, which was difficult. They actually famously approached Gary Moore, who was uh, an old Thin Lizzy guitarist, which would have been really interesting. You wonder what direction the album would have gone into there. Obviously not as, probably not as good as Blizzard of Oz because of Randy Rhodes, but it could have gone in a very different direction. He, he turned it down because he was like, I don't want anything to do with Ozzy. He seems unprofessional and, and just a nightmare to work with. And that was the reputation that he carried. So it really took the record label to gather these not unproven musicians. Randy Rhodes was an unknown, a little bit in Quiet Riot. But these musicians who were willing to work for him and then and then they came together and produced this album. It was very much a collaborative thing. And, and on top of that, the Blizzard of Oz, um, I think, um, not just saved his career, probably saved his life. Um, because if you, take, if you take that phone call away from Ozzy, I mean, how long is he in that hotel for? 
Well, no, he's, I, he, he wasn't even seeing the light of day. His dealer was coming I mean? to the door, dropping stuff off, and then that's the only person he was seeing for 24 hours a day. Yeah, so he was just sort of sitting there, which I find absolutely insane. Um, <laughs> like, when, you, when you're drinking and doing drugs, I, surely you'd want to be around people and socialise and get out and all that sort of stuff. But obviously he was going through a massive bout of depression and self-esteem issues. So credit to Shannon and the record label for really dragging him out of that and, um, and managing to, to soak for, for two albums, Blizzard of Oz and Diary of a Madman, soak whatever was left <laughs> out of Ozzy Osbourne um, to, to produce these two albums that since they've uh, really built his entire reputation on. So I, I agree. I agree with you that it was, it was about Ozzy proving a point, but at the same time, Ozzy had to be <laughs> dragged to that point and told to prove it as well. Sharon Osbourne, it really is credited largely in the book for pretty much saving his life. And I think you're absolutely right there. One of the interesting caveats, though, about Blizzard of Oz is the fact that it came out in 1980. And I believe it came out like a month before uh, Black Sabbath's Heaven and Hell, which was recorded with Ronnie James Dio on vocals. Yes. Which does... <laughs> I mean, that is quite ironic, isn't it? Quite coincidental. And obviously, it pits the albums quite closely against each other, not just in terms yeah. of, not just in terms of um, stylism, in terms of history, but in terms, of, obviously, the release date. You've barely got time to swallow Blizzard of Oz before you've got this new Black Sabbath record on your doorstep. So mm-hmm. I think it would actually be worth us just discussing that for, for a quick moment, because, and you'll tell me whether you agree with me or not, um, I think Ronnie James Dio is a better vocalist than Ozzy. A hundred percent. I don't think it's a debate in terms of vocal talent at all. Um, I think if you look over Dio's um, resume, Dio was brilliant for Rainbow. Dio was brilliant as Dio. And this album, he reaches on on Heaven and Hell, which we discussed later on, uh, earlier on on the Great Goat Metal list. Um some of his vocals on this heaven and hell is my favorite black sabbath song it is um, brilliant tony iome oh my god he's unbelievable. amazing unbelievable but the, there are just some moments with with dio where he hits some notes and it's like ozzy couldn't even couldn't couldn't do that at all and um, my dad famously used to say that ozzy couldn't hold the note in a suitcase um, <laughs> <laughs> um but you compare it to dio dio's a great vocalist and his lyrics are always a little bit strange and obtuse, but that kind of added to the grandeur of Sabbath's music on, during that period of time. And I, I think they went in a direction that they've always wanted to go in with Dio uh, in terms of like this, not prog, but um, more expansive, ambitious sound and the little classical guitar at the end of Heaven and Hell and some of the other little bits and bobs that they do. I think they really needed that. And also I imagine it must have been a relief to be able to call your vocalist at 11 o'clock in the morning and somebody actually answers the phone. Yeah. And, and all, all that sort of stuff. I imagine it was a nice relief. But yeah, I, I'm with you. As, as If we're comparing just vocalists, then Dio laps Ozzy Osbourne. But obviously, as we found out with Blizzard of Oz and his career during the 80s, Ozzy Osbourne is so much more, luckily for him, the vocals. He's the personality, he's yeah. the everything else. Yeah, like I don't think Ozzy Osbourne would claim that he's a great vocalist. He is an incredible metal persona that could also sing. That's Ozzy's selling point. Yes, I would agree with that. This Prince of Darkness gimmick really did push and propel 
his career into an absolutely incredible stratosphere. Like, if you try and tangibly look at the success of Black Sabbath post-1979 and Ozzy Osbourne, then they are not close at all. Like, no, this, album, this album, Blizzard of Oz, went on to sell 5 million records in the uh, United States. Mm-hmm. And I think Diary of a Madman did something similar, if not more. Yeah. Um, we, you know, which is astonishing. Five million in the US. It's crazy. It's a very heavy metal record. It's absurd. Absolutely. And that taught the hell out of it as well, which really, really helped. And also, I imagine, did a really good job of keeping Ozzy relatively stable <laughs> in terms of the idea that he always had something to wake up to do. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, he was clearly a man, as, as Shannon no doubt has discovered long, long, long ago, that if he leaves to his own devices his own devices will be drugs and drinking and seeing <laughs> yeah. on his own. Um, well, at least if you have him around people, <laughs> he's supervised <laughs> while drinking and doing drugs, um, which is, a, is to a credit of Shannon, who probably has um, a level of patience that would, would make a thousand combined primary school teachers blush. Um, that being said though, and I wanted to dip into this, there is a, there is an element, there's a darkness, uh, if you excuse the, the reference, um, around, around this album that concerns Shannon's involvement. And obviously, the musical arguments that took place afterwards um, before we get into the, to the album. Now, obviously, Shannon did a wonderful job of getting into and from and being so successful and all that sort of thing. But her control over the music and over the album actually ended up manifesting itself in quite a nasty legal legal dispute between uh, a lot of the members of Ozzy Osbourne's band and the record label that Shannon ran that recorded the album, where um, some, of the, some of the members said that, you know, we wrote some of these songs, you've not mentioned us in the liner notes, we deserve credit. Uh, and Shannon was like, uh, no. <laughs> so they, 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 took a, they took her to a lawsuit in, in 1986, successfully sued Ozzy and Shannon to get the music back. And then Shannon went, well, all right, and we'll, we'll, we'll record, re-record the album and just take you out of it, to which the fans went mental. And then there was a 30th anniversary version where those, those stuff was put back in. Um, not a nice moment. Um, does, does, I think, put a, cast a little bit of a shadow over the illusion of Ozzy Osbourne people's champion, but also um, the whole, the guise of Shannon Osbourne being the super manager is also coupled with the fact that she was an incredibly... Uh, ambitious and possessive woman who definitely used her control to try and wield a little bit more financial strength for herself. And so that always has to be remembered that it it did cast, uh, there is an element of callousness with this, which I think when we we step back into the actual album makes it all the more interesting uh, when you consider how much of a success this album has been, considering that during pretty much from the moment the album was recorded, the band were arguing with each other about recording rights and writing issues and then toured it and Ozzy Osbourne continued to make stacks and stacks of money and has cemented himself as an icon despite the fact that he was being sued by his own band by 1986 and Shannon Osbourne has maintained Sharon Osbourne sorry has maintained her reputation as an incredible band manager despite the fact that she did some fairly egregious things between 86 and 2002 when the reissue was brought out with new a new bass player and a new drummer like that would be okay. Um, so considering all that, and obviously the additional controversy of the Suicide Solution song, which we'll probably get to when we actually discuss the album itself, it's actually quite extraordinary that A, it was as successful as it was, 
B, that they managed to tour for as long as they did. C, that Ozzy Osbourne has maintained his icon status throughout the 80s and pretty much now, where I remember saying to you before where it's it's Black Sabbath and Ozzy are two separate things now. And Ozzy Osbourne now is almost as big a name in heavy metal as Black Sabbath itself, almost, in yeah. terms of celebrity, definitely more, probably more so in terms of a celebrity. And it's it's partly because of this 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 album, which so when you couple all that together, it really is an extraordinary, um, an extraordinary album, an extraordinary period of time, that obviously pretty much was extinguished quickly as well when Randy Rhodes himself died in in nineteen eighty two. So when you add all this together, it's such an interesting album to do a deep dive into. And just as we dive in. One of the things I find really fascinating when you listen to this record and when you read the backstory is that I mentioned, as we just started talking about the record, that Ozzy had been quite negative about Black Sabbath in the press. I'm tired of the experimentation. I'd like to go back to uh, more heavy metal roots, like a master reality, that kind of thing. But when you, when you actually listen to this album and you compare it to... Now, I haven't listened to Black Sabbath's last album with Ozzy before this, which was called Never Say Die. But I have listened to a couple of, the tr- couple of the tracks on there. When you compare Blizzard of Oz to Never Say Die, or the tracks at least that I've heard, there's not actually a massive amount of stylistic difference, really. Do you, no, think, there's no. any, do you think there's any validity to the argument that basically Ozzy Osbourne at this point was just like a mercenary that would just that basically got to this point where, okay, Randy Rose is a sick guitarist and this music will sell. So I, this, I left Sabbath saying I want to go heavy again. This isn't necessarily heavy, but I think it's going to make me a lot of money. Now, that seems like I'm being quite negative about Ozzy Osbourne there. And I'm not, if anything, I think that would actually be a, a stroke of genius because look at what this record did. Uh, under the guise of this kind of ACDC hard rock element as opposed to being a heavy metal record. So if that was his decision-making, what a decision he ended up being. But do you think there's any actual validity to that argument? I think I think there is some validity to that, yeah, because um, I'll be absolutely honest... Um, if it was, I don't think if it was just down to Ozzy Osbourne's opinion of the music, I don't think he would have left. Um, I think that Ozzy Osbourne was complaining in the media, but at no point, I don't think ever, was he going to turn his back on Sabbath because you look at how he reacted when he was kicked out. He wasn't buzzed in, he wasn't relieved, and he didn't choose to go. He was he was fired. So I think if the musical difference mattered so much to Ozzy Osbourne. He would have been in the studio, writing songs, contributing, asking yeah. questions, giving ideas. And if we keep, I, I'm with you in terms of a cynicism, um, because when they hired Randy Rhodes, Ozzy Osbourne was sitting on a chair listening to Randy Rhodes plug his guitar in and was hammered, obviously, and stoned as well, and said that, I don't really know what the fuck that is, but it sounds great. Yeah. That doesn't strike me as a man who's like really tuned in <laughs> to the to, to the subtleties of of the music that he needs. It's like a gut instinct thing for, for Ozzy. That sounds great, let's have that. That sounds shit, let's do that again. Um or that sounds great because someone's told me it sounds great, and that sounds shit because someone's told me we have to do it again. 
I can't remember what I did yesterday, so let's do it again <laughs> to make sure that I was here. And, and again, that's cynical, but Ozzy Osbourne was not, and as well, Ozzy Osbourne was not involved massively in the writing process of Blizzard of Oz. So it's not like he was like, right, I've got my armband, it's time to write the album that I've always wanted to write. He went in and just did the same thing that he did for Sabbath, just with a new set of blokes who weren't going to batter him for being pissed. Yeah. That was the only, the only difference was that he was unsackable in Ozzy Osbourne because it's his name on the door. Um, everybody else was expendable around Ozzy. And that essentially made him and Sharon incredibly powerful. And the fact that these two albums were incredibly successful is definitely more down to the fact that fair play to Sharon. If it was Sharon that put the auditions together and selected it, because I don't know for sure. Um, then they, the scouting department around Ozzy Osbourne played a fucking blinder between 1979 and 1982. Fair play. But pretending or subscribing to the idea that Ozzy was like, used Blizzard of Oz as a way to break away is, like musically, is, is, you know, is a bit of a fallacy. And every story about the writing process has pretty much proved that as well. So I, I, think, I, think, I, I think there is a massive um, credence to your theory that he probably just looked at these three musicians and thought, bloody hell, these are great. I better just make sure that I'm, uh, I'm upright when I have to sing because this could work out really well for me. And, and that's probably how it went for a few years. It definitely happened for him so it works out as we get into the actual record i find it quite humorous that he left sabbath well was fired from sabbath and then had this desire to prove that he could be the star and if this band was called anything other than ozzy osbourne he, he wouldn't be the star <laughs> because <laughs> randy rhodes on this record i mean dude i mean unbelievable it's it's a special special genre defining once in a lifetime esque performance throughout this record from Randy Rhodes. No doubt about it. Um, if you if you look at terms of like all time great performances in terms of like classic heavy metal, Randy Rhodes on on this Blizzard of Oz album, I think he's got to be up there. With with any alp with any album performance you want to throw at me, absolutely any album performance you want to throw at me in terms of an individual. If you want to say this is the guitar equivalent to Dave Lombardo on Rain in Blood, cool. Yeah. If you if you want to say that this is like equivalent to like Cliff Burton's bass work on Master of Puppets, I'd be offended, but I could see your argument. Yeah. Um like in terms of because as you pointed out, this is an album with Ozzy Osbourne on it in his first album after leaving Black Sabbath, and Randy Rhodes is the star. Yeah. Like, Randy Rhodes, like a 22-year-old guitarist that they picked out of Quiet Riot, an appropriately named band, because they were not a, you know, exactly making a great deal of noise. And he, he, his stamp and his ability is just all over this. Now, number one, he wrote... One of the top ten greatest heavy metal riffs ever, maybe top five Easily. in Crazy Train. Easily. Like whatever order you want to put it in, it's up there, isn't it? You know, Back in Black, Highway to Hell, Iron Man, it, this, it, and then on top of that, I think one. I think the solo to Mr. Crowley, huh. uh, where he does the tapping, and then goes into that is extraordinary because. 
he's not just writing a guitar solo. It's like a separate melody, isn't it? It's like a separate song into himself. And like Cliff Burton, a classically trained guitarist, which means that he did music theory and knows all the, all the keys to the chords and all the minor notes and all the fancy stuff. And you can hear that level of subtlety because he plays in a way um, that I've not heard apart from like Eddie Van Halen. It's like instantly recognisable. And all these little blemishes in terms of like the pinch harmonics and the way that he writes the riffs and the way that the chords sound, it's, it's, it's a tremendous shame what happened to him, but at least we got these two albums because my, oh my, this is an astonishing guitar performance. Absolutely astonishing. Dropping back onto Ozzy, the vocalist, you know, when, when I said that I think Ozzy Osbourne is a good vocalist, but his real selling point and what's really turned, to, turned him into a, a legend is his charisma and persona. If you listen to Revelation, that chorus, you can hear on that chorus, as they say, mother of all creation, man, his voice is being stretched to its absolute limit. <laughs> like yeah. you can tell that's as far as he can go with it. And the same um, for the chorus for looking at me, looking at you as well. You can just tell that's that's the peak that he can possibly murmur that is. And Agreed. On the flip side of that, though, I think he's great on Goodbye to Romance, which is supposedly a nod to Black Sabbath. Um, like yeah, Sabbath, supposed Goodbye to his bandmates, yeah. Although my actual favourite song on the album is just the instrumental D. Just because I think it's the most one of the most beautiful, graceful things I've ever heard on any album. It's just really gorgeous. Uh, but the, the darkness of the album, which when I first listened to this album, I fully expect, uh, after having read the book, of course, I'm thinking, right, he was tired of the Sabbath experimentation. It's his solo album. This is going to be like one of the darkest records I'll have heard of this time. And as we've all discussed, there isn't much of that. However, the opening of Mr. Crowley, those keyboards sound like a really dark church organ. And mm-hmm. uh, Ozzy's like really eerie entrance. That's like as dark as the album gets. And it is genuinely unnerving, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Especially for the, especially for the time. And obviously the subject matter around Alistair Crowley is, is a famous one. Um, interestingly, um, Alistair Crowley, Jimmy Page guitarist at Led Zeppelin bought his house and lived in it in the late 70s and early 80s which I only found out the other day which I, so there's like a real fascination with him um, but yeah in terms of the darkness it, that, that's really as, that is, is, is as far as it goes um, because it was all about image the image of darkness wasn't it rather than like the actual the musical darkness I mean well, well yeah because heavy metal hadn't really gone dark had it yet a lot of seventy, yeah. a lot of seventies heavy metal was just extreme blues, really, wasn't yeah. it? Obviously, yeah, th- thrash hadn't come around yet, no. Which was at that point as dark as metal got, and then obviously you get the further subgenres, the death metal, etc., that comes along. But in nineteen eighty, Mister Crowley is probably the scariest thing you'll have heard on tape, arguably, especially that opening. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent, and I think. I think that helped contribute the image of Ozzy that he definitely spent the next few years really selling and really living up to. That helped um, that helped further his his brand and his legacy. And when you combine that with like Alice Cooper and Kiss, uh, the whole fake blood um, theatricality on stage, 
stuff that was going around um, metal and, and, and hard rock music in the late 70s and early 80s. Songs like Mr. Crowley would have really, really, really um, helped expand uh, any idea of, of, of Ozzy Osbourne as this Prince of Darkness. And then, obviously, when they were touring and stuff, they were doing Sabbath tunes as well. Yeah. So, so like, you'd still get Black Sabbath, the song, where he's saying, like, oh, God, please don't help me. And I think that's, that's obviously right at the start of his career, and you can, you can really hear it before his, his voice got sort of really torn apart. But that's some of his best vocals on that very first album in terms of when he's crying out and all that sort of stuff. That really sets the tone and atmosphere. So I, I I agree with you. Um, the darkness isn't isn't as permeating as you might expect, but in terms of like Mr. Crowley and certain elements of this album, it's it's very noticeable and very obvious that that's been put on there to to gear towards a certain type of audience. Did want to make a quick caveat. You know, people uh, make joke out of Ozzy Osbourne's alcoholism, his drug addiction, and they do generally make light of the subject because of, you know, obviously you watch the Osbournes and it's quite funny to watch this mumbling, bumbling bloke that swears and he's fucked out of his mind all the time. But when you read his autobiography, Sam, he sounded like an absolute nightmare in for basically his career until he was like early 60s. He just sounded like a complete and utter nightmare. Like really, I mean, fair play to him for being so honest in this book. Because he, he paints this vile picture of himself. And, you know, it, it, it is quite innocent in a sense of, like, you know, it, you can tell there's a good guy in there, the way he's describing himself. But the stories that he tells, the, the detail he goes into, it, it's, it's even for lads like me and you, who fucking oh, we love a drink, but it, it is quite difficult to read. So when, when you listen to this record, and you, and you know that context going in. It is actually quite impressive that he was able to hold it together. Uh, he, he is a miracle of human life. He is that he's still alive, I tell you. In fact, at one point, it gets to the, a point in the book where a doctor is like, I cannot believe you're alive. This is <laughs> astonishing. He's like, I can't believe you haven't got a serious illness at least. This is crazy. Um, but this is, a, this is a really great record there's some real genius behind it. Uh, one of one of the greatest moments of which is on the expanded edition, where there's like an outtake of Randy from the recording sessions in the studio. Have you heard that? Yeah, it's oh, mate, it's, it's amazing. It's unbelievable. Um, further credence to the idea that Randy is the star of the record, uh, and that's not to take anything away from any of the members. Obviously. Ozzy's vocal performance suits this record down to the ground. And again, his persona is what carried him forward into this multimillionaire. But in terms of musicality, Randy Rose is, some, is just something out of this world here. And it, it, it makes it even worse knowing how it ended for him when obviously you consider the idea that just a couple of days prior, he told Ozzy that he thought he was done with music and he wanted to go and get a degree, etc. So, you know, that that makes it even more difficult pill to swallow. But in terms of a, a moment in time, what a phenomenal piece of music this is. Absolutely. And one of the first really modern sounding heavy metal albums as well. Yeah. Like, uh, that really... Judas, Judas Priest, we said how dated it was. This came out the same year. This doesn't feel anywhere near as dated. Absolutely, absolutely, and you can you can listen to some of these some of these riffs and some of these solos and and 
you can hear the influence that happened throughout the the eighties and 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 nineties and stuff in terms of the way metal metal ended up going. And obviously, we talked about Randy Rose as a genius. He's one of the most influential guitarists, despite his small contribution to the world of heavy metal. He's still spoken about alongside the Jimmy Pages and Slashes and Dimebag Darrells of the world, and rightly so. Um, because it takes it's it's one thing to be a great guitarist and be able to play all the solos and play really fast and really impressively, but to play this sort of stuff where you can actually play like iconic riffs and melodies that people remember and think about and stuff, I think that's an extraordinary skill as well. So yeah, this is a massively important album without which we may not have had Ozzy Osbourne as we remember him today, and metal might not be in the same position as a result uh, of that because. Like we've had a we've had a brief conversation before. Like Crazy Train uh, is one of the most iconic metal songs of all time. Um, it's everywhere, you know, from um, concerts to like random sporting events and stuff. It's like it's an iconic, iconic song, and that is Ozzy's probably greatest contribution to music is this album from him personally, and without which metal might be an incredibly different place. And that's why, obviously we've put it this far up in the list. We're going to move on to album reviews, Sam. Uh, we're going to start with the new, the debut, actually, Fox Jaw Records, Royal Swan, out on July 3rd via Hassle Records. Now, first of all, I want to do a shout-out for Fox Jaw. We have already done this previously, however, it's worth mentioning again. The music that we use as the introduction and the closing music that we use on the podcast is actually taken from their track lottery. So massive thank you to Foxjaw for letting us use that. Um, always look forward to reviewing albums with you, Sam, that are outside of the norm for us because of the music that me and you predominantly like listening to. Sometimes we are somewhat of a one-trick pony occasionally on, on this podcast. We talk about music that really isn't that differentiated from the previous week. However, uh, this absolutely is one outside of the norm, would you not say? Oh, absolutely. This is certainly a little bit away from the beat and track in terms of what we usually put together. No doubt about that. And I look forward to that kind of stuff because it just, for mm -hmm. me, makes it a more interesting conversation. I'm very interested to get into what you think about this. This is an alternative rock album and i mean alternative in like bold bold lettering <laughs> this isn't alternative rock like some people would say imagine dragons is alternative rock this is alternative rock in the sense of you cannot listen to this album as background music and get and get really what the what fox are trying to portray out of the record or at least the first time i played this I listened to it as background music while I was done doing something else. And I always planned on jumping in properly and just sitting with the album on headphones and doing nothing else. But I just wanted to test how it went as background music first. And the entire record went out of my head. Would you agree this is the album that really must be sat with as opposed to just, oh, I'll just chuck something on because it's easy listening? Oh, no, no doubt about that at all. Um, this is um, certainly an album that provides a sort of challenge for the listener in terms of having to sit down and really unpack it and listen to it bit by bit. Yeah, I agree. In terms of the first time you hear this, you can't just have it on as background music if you really want to get everything out of the album that it's intended to be got out of. Like like you said, this is alternative rock, but at the same time, it's like there should be a different word for this kind of alternative. 
Yeah. Um, because it's, it's just further afield than... Like, the Menzingers are alternative rock, but you wouldn't have to try hard to listen to the Menzingers. Absolutely right? not. Just no. Do you know what I mean? It's... So that this this sort of this sort of record definitely requires at least for the first couple of times um, some real some real thought concentration and, and effort on the part of the listener, which I've got no problem with at all. You know, like, oh mate, same. Um, it's it's I think it's really good that that some bands put together some music that you know requires you to actually think about some stuff and really see how you feel, which I quite like. There's a real brazen, progressive attitude to this record. Does it go too far for you personally? Um, see, that's interesting um, because I don't, I don't think it goes too far for the context of what they're they're, they're putting together. I, I think, I think that it works for what they're they're creating. I think it toes the line. I think there are some moments on this album where it's like a bit too much for me in terms of like. You know, when you hear some of the songs on this album and it's like the artist has chosen to play a, a note that doesn't quite fit deliberately. Yeah. That's and all out of this record. It's, it's deliberately like, not out of tune as sorts, but like you, you, you ma- your mind naturally expects a certain type of note to follow it and it goes a different way. It's not the wrong note because that's what they've written, but it's certainly the note that you don't expect. Sometimes I'm like, oh, that's quirky and interesting. Sometimes I do find myself wishing <laughs> that you just like slid your finger just at one more fret just for my OCD um, so it depends on the song I think at times this can be obtuse but I think overall I think it it, it works it works for what it is you know I like this album I think it's really interesting and I think it's an album as I've mentioned that kind of thrives in its bravery like for me, I'm listening to this and I can hear uh, bits of Biffy Clyro, obviously great for me. Um, bits of like the Strokes, um, great Frank, for me. Uh, Frank Carter. I think you can yeah, hear yeah. elements of Frank Carter on this. And I think that there's the even a sense of like Berry. If yeah, you, at times. Like, in that kind of... Like really kind of picked in the picturesque moments of the record where it really branches out. There's a few moments like that, uh, especially on uh, You Don't Drink a Unicorn's Blood. There's a lot of that, that kind of really expansive open sound. And I'm not saying that this is like, if you're a Berry fan, you would definitely like this. But there are definitely elements that you can pull apart from it, aren't there? No doubt about it, mate. I think as well, what I like about this album, and I do like it myself too, um, there's a real sense of humour to the album. There's like a wit, yeah, and a bit um, a, like a sharpness to it in terms of the lyrics and stuff. I mean, like you listen to "Trophies in the Attic" and you listen to "An Owl's a Cat with Wings," and some of the some of the lyrics are like, "What, what the fuck are you talking about?" <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. but like, but like you listen to it, it's like it's almost like a, there's like a tongue-in-cheek element to what they're going across. And I think it combines really nicely with the off-kilter sort of riffs. I get, the, I get the Berry comparison actually. I think the Frank Carter comparison is is bang on as well. I think there's like um there's a dirtiness to this as well that I quite like, and there's a darkness to it um, that I I enjoy. This is not a radio friendly no. <laughs> or radio one friendly, I would say. Um, indie record that you could just chuck on at quarter past three in the afternoon. I think, 
I think it, it it sort of reminds me a little bit like if you know if Gallows were a little bit politer, uh, and it's it's just like just a little bit drawn back and a little bit more thoughtful, but also has a has a real grit and drive to it as well. I think like if you're if you're if you're if you're a fan of Frank Carter, if you're a fan of darker indie. I think you'd be really, really into this. And and interesting here as well, when you listen to our theme tune and then listen to this album, it does sound like the band has gone through some sort of transformation musically, doesn't it? it, it yeah, because, if, you, if you just use those 10 seconds for your context, yeah. Because I remember you saying that, oh, this is the band, and I... And I remember thinking, okay, so it's gonna because like the 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 riff the riff on our intro is like a upbeat rock sort of um sort of thing, and I saw oh, okay, I expected that, and then it comes in, and it's got so many other layers and and tempo changes as well, much slower album than I anticipated. Um, that I think it really it really works. I think it really really works for actually. I think it's a it's it's an indie grungy. A witty sort of sarcastic collection of things um and it's it's i don't know are these from are these from america or britain chris because it's no sounds, dude they're um, from bristol i believe I, I believe bristol they're from that's that's good to hear because the i, I listened to the sense of humor and i thought that this does sound a bit british this sounds a british a british band and so i'm glad that i'm glad that they are because that sort of fits in with what I've, I've been thinking about them i think there's a real heart there's a real grit, there's a real sense of humour and an individuality and uniqueness to this album that took me entirely by surprise. And there are some really, really terrific moments. Um, and the combination of, of sounds here, it provides a really interesting journey for, for the listener. I think it's worth a listen regardless of what you're into because there's so much to unpack here. You know, I love one of the things that you mentioned there where it was like, it's kind of like a dark indie album. I totally, totally get that. There is this level of like anthem in, in the album. Is there? Now, you wouldn't think that the way that me and you have been talking about how progressive and open-ended and out there it is. But there is like, hey, mate, that chorus and the opening of AAA, that straight-up indie rock, that is, that, that that could be, like, a heavier The Vaccines or, as I've mentioned, The Strokes. And I really love that because me and you have spoken previously about, you know, I love Arctic Monkeys, I love The Stone Roses, I love Oasis, etc. So that, I mean, that's straight down my path. Obviously, the elements of Biffy Clyro that you can hear in the big choruses really work for me as well. And I think this album is, like, a, a really, really interesting collection of, expansive sounds but also like really really great choruses in some areas i mean travis in the attic it's got that really unusual solemn, got that really unusual solemn start and it ends in this really thick alternative rock vibe it's got a desolate uncomfortable screams in the background and it's it, it's got this really like dark nature offset against some of these really wicked brilliantly written choruses I was really impressed by this record. I mean, I'm not massive on prog rock um, or, or this this level of alternative rock, but I found this, as you mentioned, incredibly challenging, really interesting, and, and really well-performed. Listen, I think that this is a record that if you, if you are into music that is challenging and you can't just have playing in the background while you're doing something else, there's an absolute shit ton for you to unpack here. 
completely agree. There's there's just several layers to it, and like 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 we've said, it's a really intelligent record as well. And I think there's 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 so much heart and personality in here. Um, and it just doesn't sound like a lot of other things. It, it's standing out on its own and shows their individuality and their lyrical prowess and how brave they are to to sort of write these delib- deliberately difficult songs. But also, feature, also combine that with a genuine awareness of pop melody and chorus. Um, there's a little bit of Radiohead in here as well, like early good Radiohead before they like started tuning their guitars and convincing fans that were new songs. Yeah. Um, but um, like that sort of, it's it's bit it's a bit punk, but it's slow. It's a bit indie, but it's dark. It's a bit it's a bit grunge, but it's not as heavy. And it's like all these sort of collection of things uh, and i think as a result of that i think they have a chance to have a really really wide audience especially especially in the the, the days of sort of social media and the internet where people can find these sort of obscure sounding bands and really build up a loyalty and serenity with them so i i think the future's bright for fox Draw, and i think as well for a debut album to come out and play like this and, and play this sort of ambitious music i think is a really bold step and i, I take my heart off to them as well I echo your sentiments, man. I think Fox Draw are going to end up being really big and popular with the Arctangent Festival crowd. You know, that kind of crowd that loves like animals as leaders and Coheed and Cambria and um, yeah, man. like that, those like really kind of expansive bands like Rolo Tomasi, they're a great example. I think Fox Draw are going to be really big with them and so they should be. Uh, Raw Swan's a really, really interesting, fascinating record. Absolutely agree, mate. We're going to finish off uh, with Berry Tomorrow's new album, Cannibal. It's also out on July the 3rd, uh, this time via Sony slash Music for Nations. It's the band's sixth record. And Berry Tomorrow are one of the few bands, British metal bands, in recent years that haven't outright changed their sound. You know, you think of Architects, While She Sleeps, uh, Bullet From a Valentine. They've all made different leaps uh, in varying levels of success. (laughs) And not every band needs to evolve. I think it's it's, uh, worthwhile mentioning that, that it's not not necessary for every single band to become this whole new different entity and behemoth. As seen with Bullet, I think, Sam, you know, dude, Bullet From a Valentine's Best Years, were absolutely between 2004 and 2008. Or 2005 and 2005. <laughs> I didn't know you were so against the two records that followed. Was it Aim Fire? And I forgot what the third album Fever. was called. Fever. That was it with the like the woman on the front in the black and... Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I, di- I didn't know you were so evidently against those two records. Or not, not, not against ma- them, not- but just like massive drop-offs. Yeah, that's what I feel about it. I, I think um, even the bat, even even Matt Tucker doesn't like Scream and Fire. Like every time that every time people shout for like hearts burst into fire, it looks like someone stepped on his toe. Um, but I think yeah, I, before before we get up too further away, I think it's like the poison and like a large gap, and then everything else they've ever done, and then a large gap in the last album they brought out. <laughs> it's funny how much you hate that album, man. It's not good. It's not my fault. I really wanted to like it. Oh, mate, I'm with you. I'm with you. Uh, so poor. Bringing it back to topic, Berry Tomorrow. You forget, actually, you know, I'll say Berry Tomorrow's sixth album, and you think, no, surely not. They only came out a couple of years ago. 
But actually, mm-hmm. Buried Tomorrow, it's easy to forget. They've been going for like nearly 14 years now. So like mm-hmm. Buried Tomorrow aren't like a brand new concept. And you forget that a sixth album, obviously, of course it is. But when you listen to it without the, con- when you think about the context prior, you forget how many records they've actually done. And I remember we saw them play in December. They played mm. Black Flame in four. We were at uh, Nottingham Rock City for that. And I turned to you after the show. I think it was, was it after the show? I think it, I think it was after the show, actually. I turned to you and I was like, dude, I was kind of fucking bored then, you know. And you said, you were like, yeah, so was I, man. That wasn't great. And I was like, nah, that really, I didn't enjoy that really. And that's, mate, that's so rare for me and you. When me and you are at gigs, we are completely entrenched and the people have to kind of go out of their way for us to not enjoy a gig. Uh, and I didn't, I wouldn't say I didn't enjoy that gig, but I was kind of bored. And it kind of made me realize that Black Flame a, a, as a record was, was, a, was a good record, but really there were, there were two great songs on there. And, I, and out of that thought, I then said to you, I said, I'm going to make a prediction that Black Flame is the last great song they'll ever write. And that would be their peak. And they'd always be a good band going forward and they wouldn't all of a sudden turn into a bad band, but they would never be consistently great. And I wouldn't necessarily want to put you under the spotlight here and get you to name me the great Berry Tomorrow songs that you feel, because obviously I've been thinking about this. But I would say for me, great Berry Tomorrow songs, the songs that if you're making a metalcore player, this you'd think, right, well, I have to include this. Uh, Royal Blood, uh, Man on Fire, Last Light, no less violent and black flame for me. Now two of those songs are on black flame. So then I was thinking about this and then actually when you expand that to a larger conversation, then I start thinking, well, Berry Tomorrow have, have always been then a good band that write the occasional great song. And I think that as you get to the sixth album, I personally feel that I was correct in my, I'm thus far correct in my claim that I thought that Black Flame would be the last great song that they would ever write. Uh, your response to that? Um, I think your overall assertion that Berry Tomorrow are a band that have a handful of great songs in the midst of decent albums, I think that's fair. However, I think Cannibal the song is great. Right, okay, you'd really, put, you, you, would, you would put that in the playlist, would you? Yeah, I, 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 I really, really like Cannibal the Song. Um, and I really like Choke. That being said, those two songs, Choke and Cannibal in that order, open the album, and then after that, it's a bit of a drop-off. Um, the thing is, for me, I really like, I really, really, really like Berry Tomorrow. And I I like a lot of their early stuff. So I, I like um, Trapped Under. I think is it Trapped Under is the Metallica song. There's something with Ice in the title that I really like as well. I like Garden of Thorns. I obviously like the ones that you mentioned, Man on Fire, Last Light, incredible, Black Flame, wonderful. Um, I think there are a couple of real gems in there. Um, Cemetery is a great song as well. But I think... I think I agree with you that Berry Tomorrow have not yet written an album that is terrific from start to finish. Um, and a lot of their contemporaries by this point have. Um, now, because they've got six albums, I think they could play live 
and they would have a terrific set list if I if I wrote if I wrote it. <laughs> yeah. um, but um, what the, one of the main reasons why I was bored alongside you um, in December is because I played the whole Black Flame album in full, and it's not good enough to do that. Um, play albums in full that are a at least ten years old and b iconic. Don't play your last album in full, please. You don't know if people like it enough yet. Um, so on on this, uh, uh, to your overall assertion, like I said, I think Cannibal's great. Honestly, I, I, I love that song. Really, really, really love that song. Um, it, it's, it's beautifully blended with me and it combines everything that I really like about Better Tomorrow. I love, I love the chords underneath um, the main riff of Cannibal. Uh, the doom, doom, doom. I, I love it. And I really think the chorus is great. And I, unlike you, think the melodic vocals are brilliant and terrific. And I really like the combination of those. And that's the peak of the album. And that's track two. Um, and track three to nine could be interchanged as far as I'm concerned. And you could have interchanged a lot of these songs with albums from, uh, with songs from any of their previous albums. And I'm not sure I'd have been able to tell the difference. Um, that being that being said, I, I, I think that I think the Bear Tomorrow are a really good band, but I agree with you. And I and I feel bad for offering this sort of criticism because I genuinely like them. And I think if I went to see them, I could pick the set list and I could play the 15 songs that I love Bear Tomorrow. I'd have a cracking time. Um, but there's a lot of there's a lot of filler. There just is. So I agree with I agree with you to an extent on your assertion, mate. I think the song you were referencing with Ice in the title was called Last of the Ice. It was on their 2014 That's right. album. Right? L- yeah, love that album. Love that song, sorry. Really like that. Chorus is massive. I think that there are plenty of good songs on this album, but for me, none are great. And I think that the lead guitarist, Kristen Dawson, for the first time, is the absolutely undoubted MVP of a Buried Tomorrow album. Now, he's always been very good. But for me, he's never been the MVP. I've always given it Danny Winterbates, the vocalist, because I've always thought he does such a great goal, great job of like controlling and kind of caricaturing uh, Barry Tomorrow records. Kristen's solo passages on Better Below and Voice and Truth are amazing. And literally, mm-hmm. I think he saves those songs from just being outright bland and mediocre bullshit. And actually brings them into good songs solely. Voice and tr- voice and truth specifically. I'm uh, agree with you on that. Solely because of his performance, he's absolutely phenomenal on this album. And this absolute obsession that Barry Tomorrow have got with trying to get Danny and Jason on every track, just in my opinion, just does not work. I get, listen, man, I get it. They're trying to write this is Absolution by Killswitch, and why the fuck wouldn't you? Wouldn't you want it? I really understand that. It's one of the great metalcore songs of all time. But it just going chasing this kill switch engage in the mid two thousands moniker just does not work for them, in my opinion. I think Jason's choruses completely slow the momentum down on Choke and Cannibal. And the Grey as well. The the opening three songs on the album, Danny absolutely kills it. But they just insist on chucking Jason in for clean choruses on every single song. Mate, they take that concept and they drill it into the ground on this album. It is rinse and repeat nearly every single song. And it's just like, fuck, man. Especially for me, because 
I think Jason Cameron is a good vocalist. He's not a bad vocalist, but he is overexposed in Berry Tomorrow. Unbelievably. And, you know, when you're Wage War and you've got Cody Christad doing your clean uh, and melodic choruses, fucking sound, chuck him on every song. It's Cody Christad. He's one of the great vocal performers of, of the current day in terms of metalcore. But Jason Cameron, I just don't think he's anywhere near that level. He's a good vocalist. And you sparingly, he works. For example, the five songs that I mention that I think are great Barry Tomorrow songs, he does the chorus on all of them. So when he's used sparingly, he's amazing on Last Light, that song that was on Earthbound. He's brilliant on that. When he's used sparingly, I think he can be a real asset. But fuck me, he's absolutely driven into the ground on this album. Uh, he's good on Gods and... He's great on Gods and Machines. That's my favourite track on the album. I, I, I will say that much for him. Um, I still don't think that's a great song, but he he's very good on, on, on that song. And the only real track that changed up the pace or tempo at all is Quake, which I like. It's another good song. And it's, it's welcome because the album it does feel uh, in absurdly one-paced up to that point. And I think this is a, a good execution of Berry Tomorrow's blueprint. But I think that Kristen Dawson is like the accidental MVP. I don't think in any way, shape or form, Berry Tomorrow were right in this record. And ironically, we were talking about Ozzy Osbourne earlier, where it's like, well, fucking hell, we better make sure everyone can hear Randy Rhodes and everyone points to him because he's absolutely amazing. I don't think Cannibal was written with the idea of, uh, Kristen, you're going to be the MVP. We're going to build this entire album around you. I think it just so happens that Kristen has wrote these unbelievable lead passages that bring a lot of the absolutely boring, mediocre songs in this album to, to being good tracks. And it sounds like I've been really critical of this album. I do actually like you the album. You are a bit. Now, I do actually like the album. It's a good album, this is. And of course, I like the album. It's a metalcore record. It does exactly what I like in my favourite genre of music. But I just, it really, really frustrates me. Barry Tomorrow's obsession with getting Danny and Jason on every song. And I've said to you before, I would love nothing more than like a four-track Barry Tomorrow EP where it's just fucking Danny in the vocal booth. Because, you know what, mate? Parkway Drive, Dewey. And am I saying Danny's as good as Winston McCall? No. There's only one way to find out, though. Because he's never been given an album where it's like, uh, we're going to bring Jason in every now and again on the occasional song. But Danny, this is yours for the most part. And I think Danny's a really great metal vocalist. And I think I would like to hear that album, or EP, shall I say, because I think he could do it. It's an interesting assertion. I I think that'd probably even sound even more one tracked though, <laughs> with just one vocalist. And I think I think I agree with you that they, they try and do the it's too formulaic when they go from verse to chorus to verse to chorus. And it is like your turn, my turn, your turn, my turn, and that's not necessarily the most successful way to create music. But I I think I think on Chalk and Cannibal they get it right. And then they just try and repeat that formula too often. Um, the the song, and I think I think is it Gods and Machines that start off with the clean guitar. I believe it is. Yeah. Um, see, I, you, you say it's your favorite. You say it's your favorite song. I, 
I thought that was dull. I thought that was them them trying to be like expansive, and it didn't it didn't quite work for me. What what I've got here from this album is they've abandoned a lot of the the brutality that blended so well with the lead passages that made them so popular with me and so successful in general. Like one of the reasons that I love Man on Fire and Last Light are those breakdown passages near the end of those two songs where they combine the lead with Danny and then the breakdown guitar underneath and the mold of the lights together creates this sort of like culmination. And there was almost none of that um, on this. Um, what I will say, however, is I think when they get it right, it's it's terrific. But I think that, unfortunately for me, I think there are only two major highlights on this album, and I think the rest fades into each other. I agree that sometimes they give um, James the clean vocalist a little bit, Jason the clean vocalist, a little bit too much uh, leeway. And I think having him sing for entire verses and stuff is on clean passages and stuff would is really, really not helpful for what they're trying to achieve. Especially when so many bands have achieved massive success doing the reverse, where they've had the clean passages and the guys screaming over the top of that, and that's been really, really impactful. Um, I think there are there are moments on here that are terrific. There's some, like, I, I agree with you. I think... I think the lead guitarist has been the MVP of Berry Tomorrow since Berry Tomorrow has been in the been the band because I'm I'm not I'm not a massive as massive a fan as Danny as you are and I think that if you just had a deathcore vocalist throughout all this it would just sound like everybody else I think Jason when used properly is the reason that Berry Tomorrow feel different to other bands and I think that they have to use that but use that in the right way um, and that's the reason why we love bands like sort of Kill Switch and the thing is is when you listen to Parkway as well. They do, they do it with Winston, but he's clearly adopting a different type of vocal style in verses and choruses. So it's not like he's just doing this one thing over and over again and then they're wonderfully successful. So I think you have to recognise that there needs to be some sort of balance as well. I agree with you that I think this is a good album. I think there are moments that pass me by um, and there are moments that are very forgettable. But at its peak, um, with Choke and Cannibal, I think that there are two real gems on this album and a few moments of, of, of sort of gym worthy sentiment. But I, I agree with you that aside from, aside from runes, which I think is my favorite Berry tomorrow album. Um, I don't think there's ever been an album that has been excellent from start to finish in the same way that their contemporaries like architects while she sleeps um, Parkway drive have had. And that's probably the reason why, um, unfortunately, they're never going to advance beyond the station that they're in um, because they've got a fan base and they appeal the songs to their fan base and the writing will never take them beyond that. But that, that's absolutely fine. I agree with you. I think this is a good album. I think this is solid. It's forgettable in parts and brilliant in others. Um, but I don't think it is any more than that. Shout out for the absolutely fucking skull-crushing, brutal mosh calls on Imposter and Gods and Machines by Danny. Because that's that's the shit I really love about Berry Tomorrow as well. Like, harking back to, like, Cemetery on Earthbound. But I think that as, you, as we get to a point where, obviously, when you think of young British metal acts, you're thinking 
architects while she sleeps, aren't you? Obviously, bring me in no longer in that conversation. Though, shout out for their new song, by the way, mate. Parasite Evo, sick is that? Absolutely agree, mate. Everyone should get behind that band to be the band of the generation, as we've said, ad nauseum. And um, But my, my point is that architects have written themselves into this slight beast of a British metal band that no longer stick to a pattern of metalcore. Uh, while she sleeps, not to the same degree of success, but I think even more so, while she sleeps, have really transferred out of the concept of metalcore. Like, you listen to This Is The Six and compare that to Faker's Plague, the last song single they released, it's night and day. You could be convinced they're two different bands, theoretically. Whereas Berry Tomorrow, basically been the same band since. I think the, the the first album's not on Spotify, but I believe it's called Portraits. I've never listened to it. The um, Union of Crowns is the first album of theirs on, on uh, the Union of Crowns is the first album on Spotify. So I, I can only, I, I can't speak for Portraits, but I can definitely say that Berry Tomorrow have basically been the same band since Union of Crowns. And you know what? There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Because as I mentioned, not every single band has to evolve. If every single band did end up evolving, we would never have got fucking Slayer, would we? Because Metallica would have evolved and then Slayer would have done uh, a couple of records and then they would have evolved, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And there would have been no band to really forge the concept of thrash metal. So not every single band needs to evolve. It, it, and me and you, I think, I think I sometimes do ask a bit too much sometimes of bands in terms of, hoping they don't uh, repeat the same concept over and over. But even with all that said, I have to be honest, and I just think that Berry Tomorrow are a good band and they've released a, a lot of good albums. But And, and this will be the, the telling point here. If Berry Tomorrow were playing a headline set that wasn't in the Midlands, let's say they, was, they were doing a, a UK tour, and they were only headlining in Manchester, uh, London, and somewhere uh, further up north or somewhere further down south. Would you go? Uh... And I think that's quite telling, mate. I, I, I don't mean to say that means you don't like the record. What, what I mean to say by that is, I think that's where we are. We're buried tomorrow. Now, I think unless you're a hardened fan, you're going to really struggle to get caught caught in the fishnet. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I understand. I understand. And this isn't the sort of album that's made me desperate to rush across the country to go and see them. When it's also worth contextually mentioning, it would be the fourth time. Well, yes. I mean, that obviously plays in. Seeing them. Yeah. So if it was the first time I'd go, because I really like the band, but I, I agree that this isn't an album that's made me jump at the prospect of going to see them, especially if I if I have any indication that they're gonna play like eighty percent of this album live. Yeah. And again like, and again, um I'd I'd want to pick the set list. Like if they played this in four, you wouldn't well I'd I can't imagine I'd be seeing you there. I'd be at the bar after by track three. <laughs> yeah. Because I, I love I love choke, I love cannibal and I'm I'll 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 see you later. You can you can get your head kicked into mediocre metalcore if you want, <laughs> but I'll be at the bar. That brings to an end episode four. Dude, can you believe we've done 40 episodes of this? Holy shit. Uh, brings to an end episode oh, yeah. 40 of the Noise Podcast. You'll have noticed there was no Chris Mitz on this week's episode. The, we will be returning back to normality, though, on episode 41, where we will also be reviewing a new album from Misery Signals. Very much looking forward to that. 
Remember, subscribe to us on YouTube, leave a five-star writing up a podcast and tell a friend about us. That'd be awesome. And remember to check out Stereo Brain Records. Their link is going to be in the description. We're back in two weeks' time reviewing the new album from Misery Signals and we'll have a Chris meeting there as well. Thanks for listening to this episode. We couldn't exist without you. We love you. Bye.